This is John San Juan of the Hush Drops, and you are listening to the Famous Cat Chronicle. Hi, welcome back to the Famous Cat Chronicle. I know it's been a long time since you've seen me, and there's been a good reason for that. This is a one-man show, and the one man in question has ADHD. What that means, and I'm not trying to make light of it, is if I have something, even if it's something I love, and I know that it's going to take a long time to get it done, I am sometimes the world's worst procrastinator. But the podcast episode in question, the one that you're listening to right now, is all about John San Juan of the Hush Drops taking us through track by track and a deep dive into the latest album by the Hush Drops, The Static. I gotta tell you, this has been one great conversation. After I recorded the podcast in October of last year, I was able to create an excellent episode, if I do say so myself, which I released in December of last year, explaining all about how the band was back and how they had come back from the loss of their drummer, Joe Camarillo. And I've since had the chance to see them live and had the chance to see the album be triumphantly released by Provda Records of Chicago, Illinois. And this podcast, I obviously meant to have it released sooner. But the truth of the matter is, is I have two hours worth of material left over after the December podcast episode that I was like, gosh, there's so much of it. I don't know what to cut, what to leave on the cutting room floor, so to speak. And so what I've opted to do is I've got the first half of it. So I'm going to treat this podcast episode, episode 5.1, as two sides of the same record. So... This one, indulge me the metaphor, is going to be side one. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, here is the Famous Cat Chronicle episode 5.1, side one. John San Juan of the Hush Drops doing a deep dive into their latest album, The Static. Did Monday come too early? Did Tuesday come too late? Did anything about it? Just it time and fate. So you put your hands together, and this is what you made. Yet you know what you wrote again. When were these songs written? Like, how many were written since the release of Tomorrow? How many predated Tomorrow? Well, it's funny. I've decided that it's funny, or I'm claiming that it's funny at any rate. I remember it was either Becker or Fagan was talking, you know, whatever point Steely Dan eventually reunited and started touring and eventually started Mm -hmm. making records and new music. And one of them was saying in some interview that, like, you know, during the initial lifespan of the of the band from the very beginning up through Gaucho, that 
they always had so much work in progress and so many things that they were working on that it was really easy to make Steely Dan records because there was just... It's like having a lot of leftovers in the fridge or something like that or having a fully stocked pantry of ingredients like having the kitchen from the uh, Overlook Hotel um, in The Shining. So during our life as a band from the beginning, increasingly, you know, to when Joe died, there was always the new thing that you were working on or the newest thing that you were working on. But there was also all of this unfinished business and these ideas that had either been abandoned or incomplete. So at the time of recording, let's see, Monday was uh, Monday and I had a room and Jennifer's grandpa, for example, like that was really fresh data and the Lummox and, oh, there's a few others, I guess. Yeah, the point that, yeah, tomorrow takes the sun, planets, I think about half of it was brand new music Mm -hmm. or, you know, music of sufficiently recent vintage, which gave us a hell of a kick when we reunited because we had all of this new music to play. So it wasn't like, okay, well, let's relearn all our old songs. It was more like we had this purpose of like, we're playing our new music for people. And and then that gave it an excitement that... uh, that it needed or that I drew a lot from. Yeah. The static, that was a new song. Um, no, no, actually not. Uh, yes. So, so yeah, psychic space new, but okay. Like one of the guys, that song was about, it was an old one. I think at that point, um, Mm -hmm. like I'd written it ages ago and Mm -hmm. it, I don't know what happened there, because I wrote it a long time ago. I remember playing it, you know, 10 years ago in our rehearsal space, showing it to those guys, and I knew it was good. Mm -hmm. Um, But for whatever reason, I think we had a lot of other things in progress at that time, and Mm -hmm. so it didn't get, we didn't stay on it. And maybe there was something about it that seemed daunting to me, like, oh, this is kind of a different song and it's kind of special. And, oh, we'll come, we'll, I guess we'll come back to it. Like, I think I was, a, I had some fear of getting it wrong or whatever. So yeah. it sat there for forever. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, so we made Tomorrow and it wasn't on there. You know, mm-hmm. hadn't been rehearsed for it, uh, right. developed for it, hadn't been played on stage. I made a solo album after that. It's not on that. Like, right. so I kept making these rest records. And meanwhile, I've got this song that, like, I don't know, it might, it might very well be my yesterday or something. And it's just sitting there in a closet. how these things work I don't know but I've heard stories about this with people you know that like some of their best works which I guess I'm implicating one of the guys as being one of ours that oh you know actually yeah that song we wrote it three years before it came out or we 
put out 10 records before we put it out. You know, and I see this about great artists that I love. And I feel like, yeah, there's Pete Townsend songs that are like that. Like, there's things like, I feel like Sunrise from mm-hmm. Who Sellout is one of those that, like, you made two records that didn't have that song on it before you finally recorded it. And, you know, so it's a phenomenon that happens that, you know, that one was kept failing to get the prominence that it eventually got. And Elevator is one of those. Elevator is amazing. You like Elevator. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, 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 thank you. I'm really happy with that one. I like what it is and what it does. And I feel like it's a good blend of a certain dreaminess and hypnotic you know, sort of like vaguely psychedelic quality, but also like if you listen to the rhythm track, like it's slamming. The band is just banging away and Joe's doing all these crazy triplets and these sort of almost disruptive fills and me and Jim are playing all of these very aggressive accents. But so that's all happening, but the overall effect is kind of a little more narcotic. before we were married actually we'd gone to see Stevie Wonder about 15 years ago and it was an amazing show and just kind of one of those uh, things where you're just talking about it for days afterwards because you can't believe what you saw and experienced and I had noticed like for some reason he has all of these songs that have this kind of cascading downward staircase quality like Overjoyed or uh bunch of summer soft where uh he's just got these sort of odd sequences of chord and melody that are descending in this really smile please bird of beauty in this really sweet you know stevie kind of way and i'd gotten this in my mind that oh, that's a that's a cool thing and, and then i woke up one morning with this song in my head that was like oh this is like that kind of stevie wonder thing where just the chords keep going down but sort of in a weird in this very soft and you know not this sort of chromatic not it's not pink floyd you know it's not sid right. barrett but just with this odd sort of you know sophisticated harmonic metadata yeah. that allows them to ease down and so I got, and I remember this, you know, I four-tracked it, but again, it seemed like this sort of thing that was so delicate and gentle and miniature that like, well, we what are, what are, what are we going to do with that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until many years later, again, you know, like I made two records without it, and it wasn't until we started recording... I, yeah, until we started recording this album around that time, I was like, yeah, that's a that's a cool song, and I gotta find a way to make it. I gotta find a way to 
I we got to do this song, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I I shouldn't have abandoned it. So I mean, that's, that's this is it. You've got another old song on there. Sweetest Plum is an old song. Carrie's got acid. So that for the one... most part, it's new music, but some of it is. I mean, Carrie's got acid is probably thirty years old. I was gonna say that one. I noticed you had the first appearance that I can see in your archives of that coming up was on one of your Christmas tapes, Alpha Exponents, which is way beginning of your career. Um, yeah. The, and there were some live versions you've done. What was the decision to bring back Carrie Scott Acid? I think because, you know, part of it is like, well, if we don't do it now, we're never going to do it. But it was a weird song because, like, I had this, you know, this chorus that I really liked. And it was just kind of a catchy chorus and it was based on you know whatever like at the time of writing probably truthfully like being in a teenage fan club and bandwagon-esque and just sort of yeah. singing that type of melody and playing those kinds of chords when it's time to grow hope you can a portion of the unreleased 1992 original version of Carrie's Got Acid. So people would always ask about, oh, whatever, you know, Carrie's Got Acid, you guys still do, especially people that you haven't seen in 20 years, like, you guys still do Carrie's Got Acid? And like, you know, obviously it stuck with people either by the hook being sufficiently kind of simple mm-hmm. or the title being memorable or both. And, you know, I thought, well, you know what? I like that chorus. I've never felt that there was a verse worthy of it. It doesn't have to be a whole song. Like I get to, I get to decide what a song is. I think Um, (laughs) from the most recent album, the static here is the released version. Carrie's got acid. Carrie's got acid. Carrie's got acid. Yeah. And so, literally, maybe we just give them 45 seconds of that mm. chorus, and then just we've done teaser. the song. Yeah, just, in the, well, you know, and that this is the song. It's like, you know, that, what is it, Can You Take Me Back on side four of the White Album, mm-hmm. or Wild Honey Pie, you know, a couple of those, you know, Link track, or whatever, Miracle Cure, and There's a Doctor on Tommy, yeah. um, but, you know, I, like... Again, why does a song have to have X number of parts and follow a form and be a certain length? Like, I think we're rebelling against that, if anything. So here's the actual, the song is what you, and the spacecraft is kind of like that.
I was going to say, want. Spacecraft is the other one that I remember where you guys got into it, Spacecraft, and it, you're thinking, okay, this is going to be a great song. And then it, after a certain point, it just kind of fades off. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I was just getting into that. There, what do you mean? There's no more song? <laughs> right. Like, we've given you the information, you know, like, this is what we have. But, you know, that's the song. Guided yeah. by Voices is like that, you know, there's link tracks on loveless by my bloody valentine and right. the associated eps i think it's a perfectly valid way of making music and if you have a song you know that like that's that's the song you know sometimes right and that jennifer's grandpa is pretty short What's that one was goose because it's a great song, it's a great instrumental. What's the meaning behind the title? And you know, I mean, obviously, your wife is Jennifer, but what does it mean? The, the oh, title dear. and the connection to the music, I guess. Um, you know, if you hadn't asked, I wouldn't have told you, but oh, you expected me not to. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I guess it's a provocative title, isn't it? Um, yeah, was you know, one of those from the mouth of babes type things where. Maybe there is there's some people we know, and there's you know a, a uh, single divorced mom with a small kid. And I guess basically he gets up in the middle of the night and you know who's that man, mommy? Is that Jennifer's grandpa? And, and, and of course, just wishing to diffuse and end the situation. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, Jennifer's grandpa. So. <laughs> Whatever it was, a story. We heard the story, and it was very funny. And you know, so I had this in my head, like, "Wow, oh, Jennifer's grandpa!" Like, if ever there were a song title, you know. But uh, I, I realized I also may spend the rest of my life telling that story, and I, I dug that grave, you know, for myself, <laughs> for sure. Is there an actual person, Jennifer's grandpa, or is it just that rhetorical device to satisfy a child's curiosity? I'm sure my wife has grandparents, but. Uh, it was just, yeah, like the sort of thing where a kid will blurt out a thing that you're like, where did you get Jennifer's grandpa from? Like, <laughs> of all the possible explanations, like, <laughs> that is the least probable and the the least likely, um, you know, that like, you know, and I, I, as a point of his, history, you know, she does not have any living grandparents at this point. Right. But like, the odds that, you know, were she to have living grandparents, that one of them would be in somebody's house in the middle of the night, you know, as a guest is, you know, <laughs> not super likely. You know. <laughs> but the poetry of it really, you know, struck me as a very ticklish anecdote. Like Jennifer's grandpa, boy, you could just, you know, like that could be the name of a candy bar or, you know, a name of a song or whatever, you know, yeah, movie. A young adult novel. Right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, no, it just a real uh so there it is. These people have been immortalized without their consent, you know, in this in this song title. That's one and thing I, I wanted to ask you is when you do your writing of songs, how many of them would you say are either autobiographical or at least based on some truth versus something more abstract like something like I heard a story of people experiencing emotions like this or emotional states versus something that actually happened to you, John San Juan? I think you know your own life better than you know anything else. 
you know, anyone else's or anything that's sort of, you know, it's interesting. So, you know, Paul McCartney is somebody that has maybe taken a lot of shit for writing about Desmond and Molly Jones or, you know, whatever these sort of situations that have some fiction to them where there's Father McKenzie and these aren't, these aren't real people or whatever, but, you know, mm-hmm. I think they do. They probably do mean something. A song like Another Day by Paul McCartney. Like, I think all that stuff, It's it's he's revealing every bit as much as anyone in these songs about Maxwell's Silver Hammer and these sorts of things. But this is just how he communicates. Right. For myself, I don't travel too far from home. I think, you know, it comes out in a certain way where it's not ridiculously blunt and, you know, emo. So, it you know, obviously it travels a bit somewhere but it's all right what you know you know so it's it's really prosaic stuff honestly you know whatever the things that motivate me to put words to a melody or write lyrics they're not these fantastic far-flung lofty things typically they're uh, pretty close to home because otherwise i just I, I don't know that i would care know that I, would, mm-hmm. I would care enough to have them take the form of musical impulses mm-hmm yeah, it's interesting. You know, I mean, my my friend Josh Caterer, who mm-hmm. I really admire, I just love his yep. music, and oh, yeah. one of the things about it that I admire so much is that there is a the directness is, uh, and I've told him this, is, is there's something almost like, oh God, you're not obfuscating this at all. Like you're just putting it right out there, and and that's right. just like I, I don't know that I could even fathom writing that type of a song. You know, so to me, it's a very like, oh, that's a really, a really easy thing to connect with for me. You know, something that's that vulnerable. And, you know, but I would argue that in whatever it is that I'm putting out there, it's all coming from somewhere, you know, right. and you're, you know, reacting to something or working through something or expressing something, but never in such a way that like, okay, well, I know who, I know the person he's writing this about and I know the thing that, you know, like, you don't want to exclude people necessarily. Like, to have it be so specifically personal that, like, well, I can't even grasp onto that. That's just, he's talking about his dog that, you know, that I ran over and, you know, this very specific thing that is not relatable or whatever. I don't know, you know, because I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have the benefit of objectivity, like, mixing an album or, approving a test pressing or listening to it about like I am just hearing it I'm hearing the sound of it and you know maybe may having some sense of like oh yeah yeah I know I if I do engage with the lyrics like oh I know why I said that or right. you know what caused me to but I don't know what another person necessarily gets out of it you know right right um but joe that, but and that element of it you can't control is how it's received by the fans you can right. try to maneuver certain ways but at the end of the day the the difference between art and fan is i create this and put it out there in the world and i hope that people get some of the same emotional heft out of it that i do but right. ultimately as the artist you can only just like we said let the chips fall where they may Right. What's the thing? Is it? It's Annie Hall, right? Where um, you know, you know nothing of my work. Um, I don't remember who it is. It's there's some blowhard. They're in line for a movie. And Marshall McLuhan. Right. He actually, that was it. Marshall McLuhan. I remember him from my communication. One of my favorite theory. things in the world. Like, yeah, you know nothing of my work. You know, and um, yep. 
you know, and my feeling about that is like, I don't need anyone to know anything of my work. I wrote yeah. it, and in a perfect world, it'll go out there and, you know, give you something that I could have never even intended or dreamed up. You know, that it's almost seems... like you you're hoping that each of your songs individually can be appreciated for what it is outside of knowledge of your larger body of work. Or right. I always felt if somebody asked you, like, okay, so what's that song about? You know, my feeling would always be like, well, it's about the human condition, you know, and that's, this is like a joke because literally everything is about the human condition on some level. Like, what's that guitar right. solo about? It's about the human condition. Like, right. you know, that drum fill is about the human condition. You know, the, <laughs> what is the program Married with Children about? It's about the human condition, you know. Yeah. I, as I do kind of think everything is on some level. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, this is, I started another story with very similar data moments ago, but my wife and I, again, we uh, apparently went to a lot of concerts when we were dating, but mm-hmm. we went to see Bob Seger at Allstate Arena, and there was an opener who was really quite dismal, actually. It was this, this <laughs> guy, it was like sort of like bro country, like he had like long hair and shit kickers, and, and then like three guys playing Les Pauls through Marshalls and that I can't remember the name of the artist maybe telling in its own way, but he would literally do this thing where he'd uh, tell you the title of the next song he was going to perform mm-hmm. and then kind of give you some idea of the premise, you know, like yeah. the point of the song or whatever, the thesis, and then illustrate like basically like tell you what was in each verse like the, the anecdotes that sort of like led to it so by the time he was done this, this he had to tell you that he had to introduce the song again like <laughs> he had to restate the title and then he'd do the song which he had really spoiled at that point and you know it's like yep no i yep i remember all this from your monologue yeah you, yep, you, yep. You, you guys got pulled over by the cops and you you, you hid the bag of weed in your boots and uh, you know <laughs> and so this became a sort of Donnie Don't kind of scenario, like, well, don't do what Donnie Don't does. Like, <laughs> you know, that's like going so far in the other direction of, you know, letting your music represent itself or speak for itself yeah. that I think, you know, if somebody wants to know, like, what is this song of yours about that it's like, well, you know, just, just listen to it and there's lyrics and, you know, you'll... Yeah. It's it's never so vague or dishonest that, you know, it's all there, you know? And right. I figure I've built the explanation into the song, perhaps. Right. My vote for my own work is allow it to speak for itself. Um, oh, man, there go half of my questions that I prepared. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Whatever, no I'm, whatever teasing, you know, I'm, te- I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. No, yeah. I, this is one of those well, things where I... I great to talk to you. <laughs> I worked and reworked on the questions. But, but yeah, I, I just no, no it's, but, it's but definitely it's, not. No more questions. Yeah, <laughs> let the work stand for itself. Yeah. No, but yeah, I've heard that otherwise as well. Like artists have been asked about their song. Like some a fan will come up and they say, "What does this song mean?" And then the artist sometimes will say, "Well, what do you think it means?" And then the fan will say in such a rush because they're actually talking to the artist. I think it means X Y Z. And sometimes the artist will go. Mm-hmm, sure. And then in the back of the mind, they're thinking, that's totally opposite of what I wrote, but I'm glad you're getting some kind of 
artistic meaning or emotional satisfaction out of it, even though what I intended to say is completely 180 degrees from what you interpreted. Oh, it's like, well, what do I know? You know, like, I guess, yeah, the interpretation that seems alien to the composer, like, well, tell me I'm wrong. It may very well mean more than I think it means, or it may mean something. Why not both? Right. You know, you also hear stories of people, you know, writing songs and then reflecting on them years later and say like, well, actually, you know, I think what I was dealing with, you know, it's easy for me to see now that what I was expressing or dealing with was this thing that was on the, that appeared to be on the horizon. And maybe I just had some, that fog was starting to drift in and I didn't really know what it meant or whatever. Right. I've got secrets. I hope you have some too. Keep your secrets and let them all come through. It's no secret, I owe it all to you. It's no secret. It's no secret. How did the way that you guys as a band envisioned the album change from whatever the vision existed prior to Joe's death versus what the final product has become? Well, I think that our options changed. At the point when you and I last spoke about it, when Joe was very much living, there was a sense that, okay, well, we'll get our vaccinations next year and we'll all go back into the studio and we'll have all this rehearsed music that will add to the the contents and... Mm -hmm. So just our ability to do that was no longer an option. And suddenly, you know, it's like, well, we've got all this great ensemble music, these great songs and these great recordings, you know, so it maybe went from less from being the next Hush Drops album to being, okay, well, it's just by virtue of the circumstances that it's existing in, it's going to be a love letter to our friend, our range of contents is limited Mm -hmm. in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise but that forced some really creative thinking so it yeah of course it changed and we elected to be flexible because well i mean that was one out of one options i think is be flexible or Mm -hmm. or what you know and so yeah you know for example taking the two demos of you know the was one of the guys in the moment, which I like, I really liked both of those songs. I thought whatever record we put out, these deserve to be on it. And I think yeah. also when you're 50, you're not thinking about like, oh, well, we'll just, we'll do it on the next album. There's a sense of whatever. I don't want to say that it's a sense of finite opportunities or you know, your own mortality or anything like that. But like mm-hmm. you reach an age where you probably should treat everything like, well, this for any number of reasons, could be our last opportunity. Mm -hmm. What if somebody moves out of town? You know, you just, you don't know what's going to happen. And so I I felt, well, these these songs are going to go on the album and then you find a way to make it work, which we did. And similarly, I mean, this is is a funny little story. Mm -hmm. He says modestly, (laughs) um, but... um, Do tell. we started playing together again in late summer 2018, and 
and I had these bookings as John San Juan that had been made. And so we start honoring these bookings and it's cool because people don't know what's going to happen. And then they show up and it's the hush drops who uh, supposedly, you know, uh, mortal enemies sworn uh, never to reunite or whatever. Not that it was ever anything near that, uh, you know, rigid. It was rigid. tense, though. It was yeah, definitely it was tense. tense. Yeah, no, it wasn't a sure thing that we would ever reunite. I think, you know, other than, like, getting to find out what it's like not playing together, that's a hell of a motivator for sure. the Hush Drops pre-pandemic performing live at Liars Club March 22nd, 2019 with John, Jim, and Joe Camarillo. I think like the third show that we did, it literally, like it took place in a brewery mm-hmm. and it was in Lyons, Illinois. I, I, I want to say Ly- like near Brookfield. Okay, so it I takes place it in a brewery and they give you like... You know, it was like freezing out, and it was the day that the White Album box set had come out, so I was like kind of annoyed, like, now I want, I have, I'm have, i leaving my White Album box set to go play this show, like, well, it better be good, you know? <laughs> so we show up, and it's a brewery, and they like stamp our hands, and they're like, yeah, well, you know, like, drink up, boys, you know, and everyone was, everyone was partaking at the time, um, yeah. so I think we were the middle band, so by the time we went on, like... And we were loose, you know, <laughs> every every sense of the word. Just It was a lubricated show. We were lubricated. We were limber. We were goofy. I mean, God, I have the recording of it. And there's just, you know, like, some, I'm, I'm wondering what to do with, like, some of Joe's little ad-libs on there. Just things that he's saying when we're, when we're setting up that are, and you just hear Jim and I laughing, like. Um, <laughs> so, we had this idea... We were talking about what the band was becoming and had become, and we really wanted this in our recordings. And this was a thing that Joe had pitched ages ago. He had pitched this mm-hmm. idea like, let's make get our live sound on tape. Let's have that looseness, that informality, the recklessness, the train going off the tracks. Like, let's get that, because that's a powerful thing. And and gradually, we all fell into line with it with varying degrees of enthusiasm. And at some point, oh, by the time we're getting into the static, I think we're all really like, oh, yeah, that is actually our best selves mm-hmm. is, you know, this unguarded version of us. So anyways, we do this gig at the brewery and it's great. This was the one after your teenage fan club gig, right? It was like a year later. Yeah. Okay. Because that was sort of a one-off that we didn't necessarily leading it to anything. And we're still a little gun-shy when we did the Teenage Fan Club thing in in Mm -hmm. Halloween 17. Like, it'd be great if there were some way for us to hang out and play together. But I don't know, you know, like, we don't want to jump right back into that. We're all wary of whatever, relitigating old issues or whatever. But at this point, you know, we're, we're... totally brothers in arms we do this gig at the brewery and it's super fun and super great and just ridiculous and everyone's playing ridiculous things and then we find out i think a week later 
oh yeah, it turns out someone recorded it, like did a multi-track recording of it. Oh wow! And you know, at the time, it was like, well, that's cool, but you know, whatever, you know, like we were probably pretty drunk and probably people forgetting words, and it wasn't like we gave it any more thought. But after Joe died. At whatever point, I finally kind of lifted my head up and was like, I need to think about finishing this album. It's like, well, there's a couple songs that we were rehearsing and performing that we were eventually going to record for this album. And we might have, I wonder if that gig is still out there. Like, because mm-hmm. we've got, we played those songs and these are the only Joe performances of those songs that exactly. are out there. Yeah. So... I got in touch with the guy who recorded the gig and I was like, hey, you, you don't remember me, but, you know, we played this show and is there any way that you actually would, st- would you even still have those, uh, you know, those recordings? And you know, I sort of told him, you know, and he's like, oh yeah, well, you know, I heard about Joe. I'm really sorry. You know, that's uh, the drag. But uh, so, yeah, so he sends them over, doesn't ask for a dime. Um, wow. And... You know, I listen to them, and it's so it's well, it's you know, on this album, it's Psychic Space and mm-hmm. Secrets, mm-hmm. and they're they're explosive. Like Psychic Space specifically, Joe's playing on that is just godlike, and it's his most uninhibited, aggressive, ridiculous self. So wait a minute, you're telling me that the version of Psychic Space that's on this album is a live version? The drums are, we kept the drums. Okay, like, okay. And, and his vocal. Like, okay. Jim and I redid our parts because, in fact, like, yeah, the vocals probably were a little pitchy. And, you know, we're playing like people who have been in a brewery all night. Um, <laughs> Joe, on the other hand, was, you know, was unimpeachable. On, yeah. You know, yeah, he's, you know, um, clearly made of stronger stuff. <laughs> Stronger stuff than the two of us, but so his performances of those two songs became the basis of the tracks. Okay, so hold the phone. It's easy for some people to get confused what exactly John means happened here. It's nothing short of a sonic miracle. What happened is the gig was recorded in multi track, so ostensibly the guitar was on a separate channel, then the bass, then the drums. So to the crowd that came. To Buckle Down Brewery on November 9th, 2018. This is what they all heard. Mr. Joe on the drums. You guys ever been to space? John and Jim listened back to the recording after Joe had died. And they decided, okay, I was singing a little bit off. The guitar solo wasn't as tight as it could have been. The bass was a little loose in the goose. And they said, but Joe, Joe Camarillo was spot on. So let's strip away the guitar, the bass, the vocals. And what do we got? 
Yep. Joe Camarillo, rock solid beat. Even inebriated. Let's add some new vocals and some new bass playing. And what do you get? Psychic space. I took more than you gave. I spent more than you saved. Now we should all be on our So it's just like, okay, well, I can put some guitars down there, and Jim can put a bass down, and we can sing our parts and That's whatever incredible. and it was one of those things like obviously I would rather just have my friend here still but in a world where Joe is not here and we're finishing the album it was kind of an amazing discovery like well not only do you get to do these songs with Joe mm-hmm. but it's the version of Joe that's like maybe the closest to what he wanted it's this platonic ideal of uninhibited, doesn't know he's being recorded, Joe Camarillo. And so that was like, it was like this gift to us from oh, the sure. beyond that he'd given us. And so it was nice. You know, it was like, well, okay, well, we unexpectedly have gotten this one extra chance to play with Joe and to record with Joe. Right. Know. That's one thing I want to say about Psychic Space. It's also another one of my favorites on the album. It's such an incredibly... The one thing that I wanted to ask you is the beat on it. I almost wanted to say waltz time, but it's not because it's in 4-4. But whose concept was the rhythm of that song? Because it just it's got has this slow, loping feel to it. But it's amazing. It, how do I put this? It reminds me, in a positive way, of the drum beat of something like Fool in the Rain or even Rosanna by Toto. It's got that kind of shuffle feel to it. Was that the original? My idea was just like super sluggish and draggy. Like that was my idea for it. Like I just kind of wanted it to sound like the band hadn't had their coffee yet or something. Mm -hmm. And yet it swings. It's got a swing to it beyond just... And this is Joe, right? Right, right, right. Joe honored, I think Joe honored my performance directive, my unspoken Mm -hmm. performance directive, but he added so much. Like, he's not just going to, like, you know, play it as writ. Like, you know, he can't not add all of this other stuff that you're talking about, the sort of the swing to it Mm -hmm. and the loping. And, yeah, you're talking about these sort of, like, syncopations that make it, you know, you're comparing it to these things that are a little, like, kind of involved, you know. Um, Very. So that's him. That's all him. Um, so it's a collaboration. Like he took, again, yeah, he took my initial idea and just gave it all this depth, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, that's a, I, 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 I like that song a lot. The title was, I have a friend who you may also know, Corey Hans. Yeah. And he had used that phrase once, and it doesn't matter what he was talking about, but he just used something about like, Oh, I just I just don't have the psychic space to deal with that right now. And it's the first time I'd heard that phrase, maybe the only time I'd heard that phrase, but I was like, man, psychic space, like, dude. Like you you, you said some you said a lot there, you know, yeah. whether or not you intended to, um, because it was pretty off the cuff. And it, so it just kinda lodged in my mind. I went into the ether and 
And one day I'm taking a walk and yeah, I've got some things on my mind and I've got this melody that I'm kind of chasing, like the main melody of the song, which is sort of a, I mean, it's kind of like a Gene Clark type thing. Mm-hmm. And then just sort of germane to what I'm getting as I'm chasing this melody and maybe what I'm going through in life, like psychic space was just such a natural thing to pluck out of the out of my personal ether, like, mm-hmm. oh, this is where that goes. Like, you know, he gave me this gift of a uh, title and a hook and a concept mm-hmm. that I didn't even know I was going to need someday. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, Corey, right on, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I told him, you know, I was like, you know, as soon as I'd done the demo, I'm like, hey, you remember that thing you said? Like, well, you know, it, it, it didn't go nowhere. You know, it's, yeah. it's, now it's here. ask you what what's the story behind the abrupt ending at the end of monday it it seems to almost go into a second thing and then thank you for asking that um boy my uh my my label doesn't like it um i know that but uh (laughs) we had had you know in hush traps like one of our little perverse things was track debris the things that sort of you get on a reel of tape before the actual take or after the actual take. And like, right. I feel like Todd Rundgren at his best was somebody who like, well, side four of something, that, anything. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like it's all over that record. Yeah. And uh, like the way that hello, it's me ends on there yeah. or the, I know there's a mix of local, the locomotion by grand funk out there, which has them sort of like rehearsing their parts uh-huh. before the, Hand clap starts. Yeah. yeah. So we were really fascinated with this. And it was something we'd get on bootlegs. And obviously, like, Alex Chilton, as his aesthetic became more and more, uh, boy, I don't even know what to call it. Like, by the time of, you know, Box Bottom and things like that. Um, right. Just ramshackle, I guess. Um, Lucy Goose. Lucy Goosey, yeah. So we had this affection for that sort of thing. And... So I think when we were rehearsing some of the songs that ended up on the static, we'd like, you know, we'd play a song like Monday and then like go into what sounded like the abandoned take that we had just taped over, like the little tail of it that would be under it on the tape that would just pop out. So I I remember doing it live and I think doing a bit of that. We did that with a couple songs. That was one of them where we'd sort of like stage that little, you know, 10 seconds of track debris of abandoned <laughs> take. And we did it when we recorded Monday, like literally staged what would sound like the abandoned take. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is what that is. Okay. And, I noticed you do that on a few of the different tracks. Like there's, it almost seems to be in tribute to Joe, deliberately those extra drum beats that seem out of context. 
at the mm. beginning of songs where it's like, okay, this is Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, this is what I interpreted, this is Joe's thought process. Before he locks into the groove, he'll put a couple of tentative beats down to orient himself, and then once he finds it, the rest of the band can join in. Oh, is it's like, the way yeah, it was? no, it is, I mean, whatever that, he, that is a thing that he does, yeah, where like he would just, you know, so we would have all of this like, you know, either in the studio or live things where like you'd sort of have him like doing the drum equivalent of like <clears throat> clearing his throat right, or whatever. Right. So finishing the album, sequencing it and mixing it after Joe was gone, you know, one of the ideas I had is like, well, let's put like this is a small tribute to him. Let's put a little extra Joe in mm -hmm. a couple places. Like, let's put it right at the beginning of the album. Like, just the sound of Joe warming up, which was a, the sound of my musical life. It was a sound that I always heard. Right. And like, we did it again, like, before Elevator. It was just a thing that, like, well, if you're a Joe fan, you'll hear that and be like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, they, they're giving us a little extra Joe here, a little Joe warming up. Because... I know, like, drummers who liked him, appreciated him, would always say, like, it was the weirdest thing. Like, you could walk into Lounge Axe, and if mm -hmm. Joe was at the back of the club, and he just did something like hitting a floor tom, you'd hear uh -huh. it and be like, Joe. There, there was something about his touch that was so distinctive that whether or not he was playing actual deliberate music or, like, tuning a drum, mm -hmm. it was like, oh, right, Joe Camarillo, you know. It it's, had that unique thumbprint on it. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you know, whatever. Like, it's one of those things where when a person is not with you anymore, it's real easy to, well, he's not going to blush. You know, I can eulogize him, like, his, <laughs> you know, talent all I want now. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so that was just kind of a little tip of the cap, like a little extra Joe, you know. That's cool. That That's a real, I, I like that. The Lummox isn't obviously an awesome little instrumental. Does the title have any intended relation to the Who's song The Ox on my generation? The Lummox, The Ox. No. You know, Which is also was... an instrumental. <laughs> oh, God, yes, of course. Um, the. And we do love the Who, but uh, no, the the song is just the song. Like it was like a melody that I didn't feel like writing words for. And I'm like, oh, it doesn't need words. It doesn't need singing. Like we got we got plenty of that. This is a feel our little like this is our instrumental. And as soon as we started playing it, we really went towards this very kind of lurching bowl in a china shop quality, where it kind of had the feel or sound of like. In a supersonic storybook era, Urge Overkill, but like a lot woozier and a lot more like, you know, walking into a wall. So like, let's call it the Lummox. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like a Lummox, you know. Uh, <laughs> like this is, this is what, we made a silent film of a Lummox, you could play this, sync it up with this track and word. And I just loved the word. I always thought it was a really funny word. And so getting to use it as a song. Fit and it is, it, might, it is my wife's favorite song of ours, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, it's not divine. Or, you know, so many to choose from, and you know, maybe 
you think there's some more expected choices there, but yeah, she just She's like, all about the Lummox. We huh? recorded the Lummox, and she's just like, oh man, this is the one. This is your single. This is your opening track. This is your this, that, and the other. And you wow. know what? I was thinking about push, you know, like, eh, I'm going to you know, talk to gonna talk to Kenny over at Pravda about a record deal for the album. She's like, send in the Lummox, you know, like that'll, <laughs> you know. And, and she <laughs> will never know how. You know <laughs> how much of that factored into Ken's decision? Right? How wrong or right she was, but yeah, she really believed that that was you know that's our hit song as far as she's concerned. Like that's wow. our Hey Jude or whatever you know of all the ones to pick. But it's also true, like a person who's not in the band <clears throat> or you know not you know someone who's not at the label or not your manager or whatever. Like I feel like right there is a person who can really doesn't have any of that kind of stake in it can really like it's like when a kid picks something out mm-hmm. well shit yeah i i have this is a very pure judgment you're making like it's, right so i so i inherently put some faith in it you know oh yeah oh totally guys there's this really cool electric sitar is that your instrument because i only know one other guy in the city of chicago who owns one which is jay o'rourke how did you come about the electric sitar and is that a choral sitar i had a really cheap choral knockoff for a few years Mm -hmm. and it was it was a dog i had i really fought it every time i played it and it just didn't (laughs) really wasn't as fluid as I wanted it to be. Like I know, like the corals are great, and there's mm-hmm. a couple of other like Jerry Jones. Like you know, if you've got a couple grand to spend, I know there's a couple models out there that'll allow you to play one or two songs in your whole career. You know, so I had a beater, but I used it on that session. Mm-hmm. Just that song, I just whatever the the compositional the sound of it, like. You know, I knew like, okay, it just, there needed to be something kind of brown about the track. So sort of rhythm pickup guitar playing these minor chords with the phaser on it. And I mean, electric sitar is sort of blended with that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of having all these things blended and then, you know, having that Mellotron in the intro and outro, the, yeah. the canned choir sound. Oh, yeah. The sitar was kind of meant to be a blended element. And mm-hmm. then... At some point, our engineer, John, after Joe died, I was like, you know, can you send me mixes of all of my demos without drums? Just because I want to kind of take inventory here and see, you know, what is going to finish the album? Like, mm-hmm. what will make this the Garage Rock Abbey Road? And uh, he <laughs> sent me a mix of one of the guys that had the sitar super loud. And I was uh-huh. like, you know what? Yeah, man. Yeah, right on. Like, he's right. This was not a deliberate thing. Just like, yeah, I threw the faders up and, you know, made these mixes for you real quick as I was, Mm -hmm. you know, 
packing up for the night. But uh, and to him, that I, felt right to ice to kind of yeah, accentuate the sitar yeah. higher than you would originally or, intended, or not to de-emphasize it or whatever. So yeah, so once I heard it that way, I'm like, yeah, no, this is good. It's 2021. We're gonna come out there and we are gonna teach people to deal with a loud electric sitar like. You know, we're going to be the red bone of our era, you know, (laughs) the the lemon pipers are. The other song that I think of that features electric sitar involves one of your old group's material issue is Kim the Waitress. During the time that you were playing with them live, did they give you the sitar part? And that was my Did you guys tour with one? We, uh, yeah, yeah, it was Jim's, uh, Jim had one and. So yeah, the first gig I did with them, I got, which was a one-off, I got on the basis of like, well, we need someone to play the sitar and, you know, mm-hmm. Jim's there to sing and sell the song right. and, you know, so we'll get John to do it. I was that person uh, in their world, apparently. And then when they went on tour a few months later, like, okay, well, this is going to be the single. And I think most of that gig existed on the basis of like, we need someone to play the sitar on stage. Yeah. Um, now, so, uh, when you have your sitar, the choral sitar, from what I understand, it's got your standard six strings, and those are tuned with your standard guitar tuning. Right. But then, does your sitar, or the one that you've played, have oh, the, the drone sympathetic strings? strings? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. And it's weird. I never really, I was never quite sure of how those were working. They must be doing something, but I could never really like, oh, I can really hear the sympathetic strings going now. I just right. was aware that they were on the instrument. Right. And, you know, have probably been tunable? on there for decades. I think, like, I think it's one of those things where you would actually use a wrench or something like right, that. Right, 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 um, right. You know, and the idea also seems to be that they, like an auto harp or something where they don't quite, they don't really go out of tune, you know. Right. As oh, yeah, yeah. Easily yeah, yeah. as a guitar. Right. Yeah, one of the guys. I uh, I like the, I like that. You know, I like that the sitar is so prominent. I felt like it was nice to come out with, you know, whatever the first single from the album, just yeah. like with this flying our freak flag. You know. Oh yeah. And uh, and similarly, our friend Carolyn mm-hmm. Engelman plays that Mellotron figure at the beginning and end of the song, which is such a, it's so clear, you know, it's supposed to be a person singing. It's so clearly not a person singing. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) one of the things I like about Mellotron is like, there's things that have the, you can sort of make sound very realistic. And then there's things that are like, okay, that's obviously canned. That's a thing in a box, you know, the whatever alto soprano in a box, you know. Right. When I came up with the idea for the song, like this thing will like go so yeah, it'll it'll have a section where it kind of breaks down and it's got that like ghostly fake high voice melatron voice in there, and I think that that had derived from well, there's you know one or two songs on the Marvin Gaye "What's Going On" album mm-hmm. where he uses that where he's probably using a Chamberlain or a melatron or something, and like. And uh, right, you know, again, it's the least human sounding thing in the world, but it's a cool effect. Yeah, and uh, and thanks to Marvin for that one, I guess. You know, thanks, Marvin.
So, okay, another thing. On Elevator and on some other songs, there are, or I should rephrase that, are there vibraphones being used? And who's who plays the vibes? Because those are an amazing touch. I mean, it obviously is, brings you back sonically to a certain time and place, but it, it just adds so much to the, the fabric of the song, the, the atmosphere of each song. I hear them definitely on Elevator. Oh, right, and I guess the breakdown on the static also has the vibes and the, whatever the sort of B section of the static or whatever. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, they, they made it, they're on a couple songs on this album. That's an example of the Mellotron having a realistic sound like so that's mellotron really yeah the mellotron vibes could absolutely pass for the real thing i thought that would be synthesizer but that's mellotron wow yeah no they they and i think yeah the blindfold test they kind of they work i pictured somebody with mallets in the uh (laughs) right and they're and i assume if i understand what i think i understand about mellotron it is like each note is a recording of somebody striking that note with a mallet on a vibraphone yeah, so that was, well, like, right, I know, like, Dr. V, I think, on the first album, like, that's, mm. it's got, like, fake Mellotron, or, no, fake, boy, so many levels of fake here that, um, <laughs> fake is such I a, I don't know if I can get back home, um, fabricated, the, how's that? Yeah, fabricated vibes. Ah, will you look at that? The needles hit the groove. We're in the dead wax, and the needle is spinning around right there. So I guess it's time for us to take a break, flip the record over, maybe grab a beverage, and get ready for part two, side two, if you will. So be sure to be listening for that. That'll be coming hopefully sooner, now that I've got a reason to finish it. And there's so much great material that John and I were able to talk about in this next episode. It's going to be worth the wait. Hopefully it won't be another four months, but if it is, I promise you the episode that'll result is going to be a winner. I'm proud of this episode. I know it's sometimes like painting the Sistine Chapel, but at the end of the day, I think the time taken on it, you know, the means justify the end. You may disagree, and we'll just have to disagree. Thanks for listening. I will be back next episode. By all means, if you have anything that you'd like to send to us, send us an email at fccpod at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Thomas Durkin. This is the Famous Cat Chronicle. Catch you next time. Thanks. One, two, three, four. That one might be the keeper.